Good morning. Hey, good to see you guys. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers, like Sincerity said. Glad you guys are with us. So good to have you guys today. Um, we are in part three of a series that's called I Love Church, and really we're talking about what church is. And so if you are maybe new to the faith, maybe you're kind of wondering about faith, uh, maybe you have questions about faith or about church, this is a great series because we're talking about where the, what the history of the church is, but also who we are as a church and why it's important, right? I love the church, and we're going to talk about that today, why I love it so much. Uh, but what's been interesting is um, we when I mentioned the word church, depending on how you grew up, right, that could bring some really b- good memories or some really bad memories. Uh, um, it can make you feel different ways, but typically when you ask people about church, they typically say they think of a building, they think of a specific hour on a, on a specific day, and that's what, for them, that's what church is, right? So depending on where you went, that could have been you have to endure two or three hours of a service, um, or you could enjoy two or three hours of service, depending on what, what style it was and all the different things. And whatever that was, maybe from childhood or from, from your past experience, or maybe you have no experience. Well, this series, we're, we've been talking about that. We said this, if you want to know what church really is, church is a community of people. And the word is commu- the key word is community. A group, so it's a group of people who follow the teaching of a man sent from God to explain God and declare the way to God. That's what the church is. It's a body of people that do this, right? We, we, the teaching of Jesus, who we believe was sent from God, who was God, to explain God, to explain how life's supposed to work, and then be able to clear the path to God. And so this is what it's about. Unfortunately, uh, church hasn't, hasn't always been historically this. A lot of times it's been a... Um, a tool that's been used by religious people uh, to be able to control populations and to be, dominate and to force people to believe things that they didn't want to believe. And so unfortunately, when people hear church, there's all these different things that come with it. But this is the heart of a church. It's really a community of people um, to do this. And here's the verse that we've uh, been using is Matthew 16. Uh, Peter makes a statement about Jesus being the Messiah. And Jesus responds, says, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, the statement that he made that he was a Messiah, I will build my church. And the word here, church, is not it's the English word we use for church. It comes from a German word, which is the is not a really good trans, uh, uh, tra- uh, translation because it's not a translation; it's a substitution. So they took a German word and instead of using the Greek word ekklesia, they used the word for the German word for church, which means house of the Lord, which confuses the idea of what Jesus was trying to co- create. And so ekklesia is the word, and he says, "But uh, essentially, I'm going to build my church, on, and the gates shall not prevail." Ekklesia is the word that Jesus used. Uh, the translators, they substituted the, the German word for church, which just changes the whole idea of church because now it's a, a house of, of, of the Lord. So it becomes a building again. And the whole point Jesus was trying to make was the, the church I'm building is not a building you go to. It's a group of people that come together. And when you understand that the church is a group of people, not a building, that changes things. Because now it becomes a movement, not a static location that you go to, but rather a movement of people working together to do something. So ecclesia, it wasn't a religious term that Jesus used. It was just an assembly or gathering. I wish they would have kept that word in there because it would have saved a lot of trouble um, for us understanding what the church is. It's not a building. Unfortunately, the reason they left it in is because the people that were in control and power wanted control and power, and they wanted people to think you had to go to a specific location to be the church. You had to go to a specific location to meet with God, and that was Old Testament thinking, right? That's the Hebrew Bible, but the, but the, the Christian Bible, the New Testament, the New Covenant, really is about opening it up to everybody and God's presence being available all the time, anywhere you go. And so uh, throughout history, we've been talking about that, right? So um, really... Uh, the difference between a church and ecclesia is uh, you can lock the doors of, of what we think of church a building. You can never lock the doors of an ecclesia. It's a movement of people that always moves on, right? Um, this is the location when people think of church. 
Ecclesia really is just a purposeful gathering of people. They have a purpose to gather. And so this is week three. In the last two weeks, what I did is I went in, back in history to tell us about some of the things that took place when it comes to the church. Where did the church come from? Historically, for the last 2,000 years, what has the church been doing? Um, and so I wanted to go backwards because if we're going to understand what we're called to do today, we really have to understand where the church started and then where it went. And especially as we can avoid some of the things that they did that were wrong. And so really, I covered about 1,500 years the last two weeks. Today, I'm going to catch us up to present day. And uh, so if you know, trying to teach 100 years in just a couple weeks, a couple thousand, is really difficult because there's a ton of information out there, right? But essentially, this is what we said the first week. I'll just kind of catch us up. The first 300 years after Jesus dies is the, the 300 years is, is where the church is persecuted. It's the persecuted church. So essentially, people were trying to hunt down and kill anybody that was associated with Jesus, associated with his name Christian, associated with, with the belief that this man died, that they, they claimed was God, who came back to life. And his people were so adamant that it happened that they were willing to give their lives. And many of them gave their lives. But here's the thing. Whenever you try to stop the church in, that, in those years, it, would, it, was like, it was like fire. It spread everywhere. It ran around the whole world. So for the first 300 years, the church was the church that, that Jesus created. It was a movement. It was the ecclesia. It was a group of people that were moving together to make a difference in our world. And then after 300 years, we talked about Constantine the emperor. He became the, a Christian emperor, the first Christian emperor, who then uh, legalized and, and really made Christianity the state religion. So then the, the church and politics were married together, um, which sounds really nice in the beginning, like, wow, they're no longer persecuted. Now we have freedom to be able to be the church, not just, not just like, you know, one of the churches of the many, but like the main church in, in the Roman government. So then we talk about the Holy Roman Empire. This is where the Holy Roman Empire starts, right, after 300 years of persecution. Now, for the next uh, 1,200 years, the Holy Roman Empire will dominate. Unfortunately, they were very empire, and they were very Roman. They weren't very holy. And so the church really was used as a tool, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't good. So the church history for 1,200 years, when people say, well, yeah, I don't think I want to be a part of Christianity, the church. Don't you know what happened in those days? There's a lot of bad stuff that happened during that time is why people would say that. And so uh, up until about 1500, the 1500s, um, this, this, they, they ruled, and then they were eventually conquered, and a group of people began to, we called them the reformers, different parts of the world, they began to challenge the religious system of their day, the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Holy, Holy Catholic Church, right? And they began to challenge it, and the Romans, the, 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 the Catholic Church took it as a, uh, what they, is a protest, right? So that's why they were called, they're called Protestants. So really there's two branches that are main, that they would kind of divide us now as churches, as Catholic and Protestant, right? And so the Catholics said, well, these guys are protesting what we're doing, so they're now going to be the protesters, right? The Protestants. The people that were, re- that were change- challenging it, they called themselves the Reformers. They were trying to reform church, reform what was going on. And so about 1500, we begin to see these things take place. So then from 1500 until present day, this is where I'm going to catch us up, 500, that 500 years has really just been a battle to really stay centered on the mission that God gave us. Um, not the, so whenever you, you marry the church and something else, you, you miss the point. This is what the, the religious people of Jesus' day did, right? We called it the temple model. Last week I talked about this. The temple model, which is, this can be used for any kind of religious belief almost everywhere around the world. It could be a medicine man in the, in the, in the middle of nowhere. It could be um, the, the Ju- uh, Judaism and going to the temple. But essentially, temple model is just there's a sacred place and a sacred text, and there's sacred men who can control those, typically control those two places, and they have sincere followers. So the temple model is you, you have a group of people that they have some kind of, you know, either they believe God gave it to them, they believe it's some kind of special, it's a letter, whatever. 
So their whole belief is built around this. We get a lot of different religions, right? And they typically have a sacred place where these things happen. They build temples. They build things around it. So the temple model was the Old Testament, right? That was the, that was the Old Covenant. The Hebrew Bible is really built around that and all the other religions. Well, Jesus didn't come to create Temple Model 2.0. He came to completely do something different. He came to create a group of people to be a movement in this world. So if, if, we were, if we continue to be what God created, what Jesus wanted to create as a church, we'd be moving around the world and making a difference in this world rather than just having people come to a location, right? That's not the purpose of the church is, hey, come and watch. It's rather us, let's go and, and impact this world. Let's go and do this. And so, so the temple model, really when the, the, Roman, um, the Holy Roman Empire was built around this, a lot of the old kind of got bled in with the, they mixed with the, with the new, and it became this new version of church, which really wasn't what, what Jesus was talking about when he said my church. He wasn't trying to build another temple. He was trying to create a group of people that worked together to do something, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So for those 500 years, um, 1,500 until now, really it's just been kind of like a, a battle for the church to stay in the center of the mission of God. So God gave us a mission and said, go do these things. And there's always these extremes, right? So the Protestants, they thought the Catholics were one extreme. So instead of kind of going to the middle and finding the mission of God, they went to another extreme, right? And they began to be the opposite of that in many ways. But unfortunately, like we talked about last week, is sometimes you become the very thing that you judge. This always be very careful judging people and judging things in this world because the, the way you judge, that judgment will come back to you. And a lot of times you become that thing. I see people who, um, like Father's Day, right? So um, sometimes people will be so upset at their fathers. They weren't good examples, you know, the whatever. And they, they disliked them so much, and I talk about the journey why, then ask them their story. And a lot of times they're repeating the same thing that their fathers were doing. Why? Because they judged their fathers, not understanding the, 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 the battle they were fighting, right? And if you judge somebody in, in that way, you sometimes become that thing. And in the church, it's the same way. The Protestants, in many ways, became exactly what they were judging in the Catholic Church. They, they didn't like that the Catholic Church was controlling. Well, the Protestants began to use, and this happens to all of us, use the Bible for, for control of people, right? And they began to, the same things they despised, they actually became. And so really, the, five, the last 500 years has been kind of a battle for, for different churches rising up and different teachers saying, hey, let's get back on the mission of God. God didn't call us to build buildings, right? It's not that buildings are bad. That's not the point. The point is, if we're, if we're not moving forward, if we're not making an impact in this world, really we're missing the mission that God has called us to. And so it's always been a, a battle to stay on the center. And whenever you, you combine church and any kind of politics, church and government, church and anything, and you mix those two together, you are already off of the mission of God. Because it's not two things. It has to be one thing. And this is the point God just is making, is if you don't keep the one thing the one thing, it, it believes in everything else, and it becomes diluted and just doesn't have the same impact. And here's the thing with the Protestants is when, when we begin to protest the Catholic Church, like anybody, if you go watch protests, right, you see their signs, and typically pretty quickly you know what they're against. Well, they don't like that person. They don't like those things. They're very vocal about these things. So a lot of times with, with the signs that we protest, we, people know what we're against, but they don't really ever know what we're for. And this is, the, this is the, what's really sad a lot of times, that people reject Christianity, they reject Jesus, not because of um, who, what Jesus said and because of what he taught, rather because of what people have represented him, what have, have people have done in his name, right? And they see those things and they say, well, we know what you're against, we just don't really know what you're for. So Jesus movement people, they are saying, this is what we're for, we're for people, we're for people ex- experiencing God and knowing that there's something better, right? And so Jesus is essentially saying, just live it. When you live it, when we live the gospel, we make an impact in this world because people see something different in us. 
So the first 300 years, when they were being persecuted, the church, it grew the most, right? It had the biggest impact. Why? Because the pagans would look at them and say, this group of people is different. They love each other differently. Not just that, they even love us. Like, we're pagans, and they still care for us, and they love us. This is, this is, this is unheard of in culture, right? Because in, in that day and age, you love the people that were like you. And you were very suspicious of people that weren't because they were going to come and dominate and come and kill you, come and all that. So you just kind of stayed close to those people that were like you. And you didn't care for other people at all. And all of a sudden, this Jesus people began to love everybody. And they would give their lives willingly. And they're like, the culture's like, this is different. What they believe is not just something they say. It's how they live. And this is what Jesus calls us to. So for these 500 years, let me just give you a couple examples of, of what took place, all right? Um, there was, we talked about the, 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 um, the holy wars, right? They went to the crusades that went to, the, to build, take over Jerusalem. And that was just a really bad season of the church because the, the leaders of the church used people uh, to go and, and kill others to get more power, to get more land, to get more money, right? Well, there was another version of that that went to the, to the west, and this is where with Christopher Columbus and all the, all the different conquistadores, right? So there was they, they sent them to go look for, for – they thought it was India, right? And, and they began to send them with two things, to go spread the gospel but also to go get money, right? So it was two different things. And um, um, these different people that went on these expeditions and these different conquistadores, they begin to go and conquer, right, in the name of God but also in the name of the king and the queen, and so um, there was one specific one in Latin America, Cortez, who went and, and did a lot of – he conquered a lot, right? And one of the guys in his group actually writes some reflections on, his expo- on their explorations. And this is what Bernal Diaz de Castillo said in 1584. He said, we came here to serve God and also get rich. So remember, when you combine two things, right, to serve God but also to get rich – there's a little problem with this. It's the fact that Jesus says you can't serve two things. You can't serve God and you can't serve mammon. Or you can't serve wealth, right? You can't, you can't say, okay, God and money are equal. Nope, you just missed the whole point. God doesn't share the spotlight with anybody. And the moment they made it God and something, they're off mission. And the reason they were able to do horrible things and commit horrible atrocities of rape and pillage and taking things and just massacring people is because they were saying, well, it's in the name of God. Um, I don't know what, what you were reading. Well, I tell you what they're reading. They were reading the old way of doing things, and they kept using the Old Testament as a, as a weapon to say, here's what we can do. And they didn't apply the, light, the, 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 the teaching of Jesus at all. They ignored those things because it wasn't about loving their neighbor. It was about getting rich. It was about power. Um, and then we get the, the, the Puritans, right? They come in, into America. And on November 11th, they land, and they, before they get off the boat, 41 of the 50 men signed this compact called the Mayflower Compact. And this is what they said. They say, for the glory of God and the advancement of Christian faith, that was pretty good so far, and the honor of king and country. Okay, so we're going to combine a couple different things here, right? It's not just God. It's also for the king. A voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. And this is, this is part of their, their compact that they signed, right? This is why we've come, right? And they kind of changed the strategy when they got there because originally they agreed to some other stuff. But eventually they said, no, this is, we want to have religious freedom. And the Puritans came because in, in, the, in England, the Church of England became just like the Catholic Church. They became controlling. And if you didn't believe what they didn't believe, there's persecution, there was jail. Uh, you just didn't, they made it hard for you, right? The religious people, the governors, they wanted you to believe what they believed. And these were, they were supposed to be Christians, people who led, led the example. So the Puritans, as soon as there was a chance to get on a boat to go to a different land to start a new, new country and to start new, new towns, 
they, they jumped on board because they thought we have the ability to have freedom to worship God the way we want to. Essentially, we are going to interpret the scripture the way we want to. And they left because they wanted, essentially wanted religious liberty and religious freedom. Unfortunately, and there's a book I've always been reading, it's called uh, uh, Inexplicable, this, the story of the, Christ, of the Christian faith and the Christian church. Like nobody can explain why it's lasted because it shouldn't have, right? We understand it's supernatural. But in this, in this, um, in this book, he quotes this other book called Democracy in America that's talking about um, the, the Puritans. And essentially um, what, what he says is in this book that the Puritans completely forgot the great principles of religious liberty. Like the reason they left England was they wanted religious liberty. But as soon as they landed and had some control, like that went out the window. Now it wasn't just religious liberty. It's you do what we want you to do or else. And they became the very thing that they judged the English church for. And they begin to say it's either our way or no way. You're either with us or you're not with us. You either believe this or you're gone. And instead of loving their neighbors or themselves, they were saying, you have to become like us or you can't vote. You can't be a part of our colony. You, you, you're, you're, excommunicate, you're, you're gone, right? And they begin to repeat all these same things over and over. So Jerry um, Pattengale, the author of Inexplicable, he says this, that Puritans, their eagerness to impose their own doctrinal ideas on the public at large made it apparent that, that what they had claimed, that they had clamored for in England wasn't so much religious freedom as religious power and authority, Power and authority. Anytime we add Jesus and something else, we're already off track. If it's, it has to just, it can't be Jesus and wealth. It can't be Jesus and power. It can't be Jesus and authority. As soon as you do that, you miss the point. The reason the first, the early church for 300 years that were persecuted were so attractive to the world is because it wasn't, hey, here's Jesus and let us have power. Here's Jesus. It was, no, God is doing something different in this world. Um, and so, I was reading actually last night, the, just, I've been going through the history of the church, and I did not realize how horrible a lot of this stuff is taking place. And for the first time, I understood some of my teachers and some of my friends who talked about um, just some of the things that were done in the name of the church, right? And for the first time, I really felt it and understood, like, wow, I can understand why people would reject Christianity. I can understand why people would reject the church. I get it. When I read what some of these people did, I'm like, my, my, I had to put the book down a couple of times and think, like, oh, my goodness. They did these things in the name of Jesus, and it has nothing to do with Jesus' teaching. In fact, it's the opposite. They didn't love them. They took advantage of them. They didn't love them. They killed them. They didn't love them. They raped them. And my heart broke because I saw in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the church, they did horrible things in history. And I, I put the book, book down, and this is the prayer I prayed. I said, God, please help us. Never repeat the mistakes of the previous leaders who claim to be the church. So in this series, one of the reasons I want to talk about the the past is because I want to make sure that we never, 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 never repeat the things they did in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christianity, in the name of the church. Because as soon as we add Jesus and something else, we are in danger of doing those exact same things. And I'm not judging them in the sense that, um, that we're better than them. I'm saying we can become those people very quickly if we're not careful. Because there's something about when you start, when God, when you follow God and he begins to bless your life, there's something about like, wow, God is really doing some cool things in my life. And before you know it, you can get very uh, uh, full of pride and you get very haughty and like, man, I'm better than others. And as soon as you become that, you're on the way to becoming what they were, thinking they're better than everybody else. 
And when I read this, I was thinking, God, please never help us. As the Grove, as far as, as, as much as we can do to never repeat those things, to make the mission that you gave us the mission to keep going forward. forward. And so those who did these horrible things in the name of Christ, right, um, I can understand why people would resist those things. We should resist those things. Everything that people resist about the church that, that, um, that they say because of the past, we as a church should resist also and say, you're right. Man, forgive us that people in the name of Jesus actually said they were doing it in the name of Jesus. They weren't. It was the name of the king. It was the name of power. It was the name. It, it, they were doing it for, for wealth, for glory, for gold, right? They, they wanted more authority. They wanted more power, and they, they took advantage of different groups of people. But it has nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with the message and his commands. It has everything to do with those who claimed uh, to represent him, how they used and abused their position of authority, how they used and abused their position that God gave them of, as leaders. Um, and those that were blessed by God, they used the blessings for evil things. And if we're not careful, we can become those very things. So you're, I know at this point you're thinking, well, wow, so why exactly do you love the church? Like, <laughs> you've given us 2,000 years of history of, like, horrible things, Right. Uh, now, the persecuted church, man, you can't say anything bad about them. Like, they, they gave their lives willingly to help spread the gospel, right? So the first 300 years, man, is, is beauty that you see in the middle of, of that. In fact, they, they would say that the, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Every time a martyr, somebody got killed for their faith, like, that, the church exploded in those areas. It became the seed that God used to show people there's something bigger than life. So, so why do I love the church? Why, why should we love the church? If all these things had happened... If all these bad things happen in the name of Christ, in the name of church, why do we love the church? Well, remember, the church is not a building. The church is not an organization. The church is a group of people. It's a community, right? And who did, die, who did Christ die for? People. He died for humanity. So the reason I love the church is because God loves the church. It's the very people that understood that you did something on our behalf, and because of what you gave to us, we want to now willingly give our lives to help others know what you've done for us. So he came, right, for people. He came uh, as one of us to give us a way out of the mess that we create and have created. That's what Jesus came. He came as God in human flesh to come and show us a way to take back what the enemy had stolen, what Satan had stolen from us. The same things that he's stealing from our family members, the same things he's stealing from our friends, from our neighbors, from our coworkers, from strangers, random people. It's the same things that he's stealing today that Jesus came to, re, to, to take back and to say you, it can be redeemed, that life can be better than what they have going on. And Jesus invites us into this, in, into this journey with him. So I love the church because God loved the church, right? I love the church because God can turn messes into miracles. He could take the broken and he can make something beautiful out of it. He'll take the, he can make beauty out of ashes, one of, the, one of the, the prophets says. That he takes the things that have even been burnt and destroyed and he could take that and make something beautiful out of it if we'll allow him. So in my life, one of the reasons I love the church is because the church has impacted my life significantly. Um, the year I was born, my parents uh, became Jesus followers. Um, it was a group of people. In fact, I didn't, I didn't really know the story until we were starting to plant the church. As there was a man who came um, into Santa Fe, kind of just came into the, into the town, and, and he started this new group, of, this new church, uh, and he gathered some people together. And people began to experience God in an amazing way. And a, and a family and a couple in that church ended up meeting my parents and telling them and, sh- and sharing with them what God had done in their life. And my parents were at a point that it was a make or break, right? If they didn't make that decision to follow Christ, it was, you know, game over almost for the marriage and things like that. It just wasn't, wasn't good. wasn't healthy. And they had this encounter with, these, with the church, with these people, this group of people. 
uh, that, that God was doing something amazing in their life. And they committed their life to Christ, and, and, um, and God broke some addictions in my family's life. He broke some curses that were passed down from generation to generation. And so as a young kid, I grew up in a home completely different than the home my father grew up in, completely different than the home that his father and his grandfather grew up in because of Christ breaking this, this generational curse, breaking these things in my family's life that I grew up in a different home. So my dad, it's Father's Day, and I'm, I'm grateful for my dad. He's not, he's not a perfect dad. None of us are perfect, right? Only God can be perfect. But here's the thing. My dad is a hundred, maybe even a thousand times better as a father, as a Jesus follower, than he would have been not. I guarantee. A thousand times better as a Jesus follower than if he would never would have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. Most likely, the things he judged in his father, I would have judged in him if he didn't become a Jesus follower. And I would have probably just repeated what he repeated and what they repeated. Because that's just how it passes on. We blame everybody else for all the things that are going on, not understanding that they had their own things going on. And instead of having grace and saying, I wonder why they're like that, we just judge and say they shouldn't have been, right? And so my dad becoming that, was, it was an impact. It was a group of people. It was a church planner who came to Santa Fe. It was a group of people that said, together we could be a movement of, of, of God that can help others to save their marriages and save their families and break addictions. And so addictions in my family were broken because of a church, a group of people that said, Jesus' way is the best way. And it wasn't, hey, Jesus, and it was just Jesus. Let's help people experience God, experience his love. So the reason I love the church is because it has impact in my life. God used his body, his people, to make a difference. And we'll talk about how Paul talks about the body in a little bit. But before I do this, let me give you some, some, some tools, right? So if, if you're a Jesus follower, sometimes you encounter people that are like, why do you believe that? You're crazy. That doesn't even make sense, Right? And you have a conversation with somebody, like, there's only really one legitimate reason they shouldn't be following Jesus is because they really don't believe he's the son of God. Besides that, there is really no reason. Like, if they say, well, the past, that has nothing to do with Jesus. They ignored his teachings. They, they cut out scriptures to be able to, to do what they wanted to do. But if you have a conversation with somebody, a lot of times, if they realize, like, what they're rejecting, we should reject also. Well, I don't believe in, I don't really believe in God. Well, what, what God do you not believe in? And they'll tell you, like, I don't believe in that God either. That sounds like a horrible God. Can I tell you about the God I believe in? He willingly gave his life. He willingly sacrificed. He taught us how to love others. He showed and modeled the way, right? Nobody resists those things. A a world of people loving each other is the best world we can live in. And that's what Jesus was saying. So one of the great things about the the Bible, about scriptures, is, is God used some amazing people to help us on this journey, to even help others understand that God has a great plan for our life. Um, so Luke, the, the, the gospel of Luke, Luke, is a, he was a Greek physician. So we get a doctor who's not a Hebrew. He's a doctor. He's traveling with Paul. And, and, and this is how his letter starts, open, starts, starts off, right? He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So get this, many people, this is unique in history. There's not a lot of documents that are documented about a single person. Like you'll have one group of people like, you know, the, the, the leader says, hey, write about me, right? Tell the story, my story, and get somebody to write about it. But all of these different people begin to write these accounts of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because not just because they believed he was son of God, because he came back to life. There was an event that took place that changed everything, right? That's what we celebrate Easter. So as many people have set out to write these things about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So Luke He's writing to this to, to specific person. You'll see in a second. He says they were you. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. This is not the twelve disciples, the apostles. This is like all the disciples that encountered him. 
At one point after Jesus came back to life, he, he visited with his disciples, taught them, and trained them. There was one point that he was present with 500 people that encountered and saw him at one moment. So this is recorded, right? And so he's saying these disciples, these people that were following him, that, that began to believe him, uh, they began to tell their reports of what Jesus had done. So then he, Luke says, having, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, remember he's a doctor, he's in the details. So as you read through Luke, you, you see that as, as, a, as a person that's trying to kind of unfold this story for other people to see, he's, he's giving these details. They, they carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I have also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. So he's writing to this person, most likely a very influential Christian, maybe a Roman, maybe we don't know exactly who this person was. But other letters were written to this guy, and so uh, most likely he was a Christian uh, that, that Luke is writing to give him this account, right? So he says, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. So you're believing this person. Now I want to give you some tools and some information to help you understand that you really are believing what you should believe. It's, it, it, it's about this, this man, right? And it says he, um, so then Luke writes, and he begins to tell the story. And he doesn't start with Jesus. He starts with Jesus' cousin, and he starts with some different events that took place. And the reason is because Luke is trying to say, all right, God was doing something in the past, but he's going to do something new. And he begins to write about this, this, um, this man named John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin. And he says this, that, that, that these, this couple, this priest, he had, they had a baby named, named uh, uh, John, who was a miracle because it, her, she couldn't get pregnant, and eventually she does. And so it, this is what it says about, he, Luke says about John, he will be a man with the spirit of power and the power of Elijah. So this person is going to be similar to the prophet Elijah, who did a lot of miracles, right? And who was very strong. He said, he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, coming of Jesus. And he goes on and says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. So John's going to stir people up to begin to think differently than the culture thinks, right? This is different. The hearts of the fathers are going to turn to their kids. And he's going to cause the rebellious to begin to accept that there's wisdom beyond what they can see. So when he says this, he's quoting an Old, uh, Old Testament prophet, the last book in the, in the Old Testament, called Malachi. And Malachi, let me read it for you so you can see the comparison. Um, he talks about how one day God's going to send another prophet like Elijah, right? He says, look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before, you, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. So before Jesus arrives, I'm going to send this, this prophet. His preaching will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Anytime, it's the prophet saying, anytime that our hearts are not turned to one another, there's going to always be destruction that comes. So when one group of people thinks they're more important than another group of people, they begin to dominate and do things that are just unhealthy, unwise, right? But God says, whenever our hearts will turn to each other, the hearts of fathers will turn to kids, and the hearts of kids will turn to fathers. When there's this, this, this um, reciprocal relationship between different groups of people, God always shows up. Right? This is part of that process is God is going to show up when we begin to value each other the way we should. When we begin to see others the way God sees them. Not in a selfish way, but in, in a way that we say, you have value as much as I have value. And so today... As the church, one of the reasons I love the church is because the church is, call, is always calling us to say, make sure you look ahead. Make sure you look to the future. Live in such a way, adults, that you make it easier for the kids, that you lead them to healthy ways. This is different than culture because cultures typically work as hard as you can so you can make as much money as you can so you can have a lot of fun. 
Your kids can figure it out for themselves, right? You worked hard. You should enjoy it. Where God is saying, no, no, you got to live your life in such a way that you're not repeating things, that you're, you're loving your kids the way you live. And in turn, they're going to turn their hearts understanding, saying, my parents' heart is for me, not just for themselves. And that's different. So here's a few things we can see about the church, right? So Paul would go plant churches around the, the world, and he'd write these letters to the, to the different churches. And one of the words he would use to talk about the church was the body of Christ. So if you get this picture, right? So if, 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 we ha- if the church was a, it's not a building, but if it was a body, you could think of the church as a body. You would have the head, which would be Christ, right? So this would be the head. And then they have the rest of the body, which is made up of, of individuals, right? And so he would say that the church is like a body. So the church is like a body. It's not a kingdom. In fact, Pilate asked Jesus, like, well, if you're the king, where's your kingdom? And Jesus responds, says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not here yet. It's, it's going to come, but it's not here yet. And if it was, Pilate would have been gone pretty quickly, right? So essentially Jesus is saying, my kingdom is it's not time for my kingdom yet. Right now, I'm starting something different. It's a group of people who are trusting me, the ecclesia, right, a movement. So it's a body. So Paul uses this idea. Instead of a building, he says, let me help not confuse you. If you're a church, you're a body that works together. And so together we work. So you might be a finger, and he talks about this, right? You might be an eye. You might be a, a part of the body that is, is working and helping to, to make a difference. So if you can imagine, like, I don't know, like it's kind of weird to think about, but if you can imagine this giant of a person, right, and you have all these different people connected that are, that are working together to make a difference, that's kind of what the body of Christ is. Like we're his hands and we're his feet. We take his, his, his message to the people around us, right? But a body, in order for it to function, it has to work together. It can't work separately. It can't be by itself. So um, if you think of like, um, you know, if, if I amputated an arm, what, what does an amputated arm become? Dead, right? If, if you cut off an arm from the body, it can no longer function as part of the body. And what happens a lot of times is people say, well, I'm a Jesus follower. I just don't want to be a part of a church. So they're saying, I want to be an amputated part of the body, which really says they're not going to make any kinds of difference because they're not connected to anybody. And we're missing those things, right? So when we don't have a part of our body, we can't do everything we're called to do. So we can't be that kind of person that is, um, that is, is not being used in, in things that we have. Let me show, show you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, 17, he says, now you are the body of Christ. So he's talking to the church in Corinth. He's saying, you're the body. You're the movement of people, right, that work together to accomplish something. And each one of you, everybody say each one, is a part of it. So each one of you are a part of the body of Christ. If you're functioning, if you're working together, you're able to work to, to accomplish something that's so much bigger than any one of us. It's, it's a movement of people saying, you're gifted with a specific gift, and you're gifted to have a certain role. Um, and if you're missing, we're missing something. And if you're not using your gifts and your, your talents and things God's given you, we're really not able to accomplish all that God wants us to accomplish. See, it's not about consuming. It's about giving. It's about, it's about helping others to know, right? So because here's what happens is the more you give, the more you'll know how to give when you get more. Typically, and this is, this is the old way of thinking, is the more I give, the more I get. No, no. That's the old way of doing things. This is, how, this is what leads us into doing really dumb things is, well, I'm only going to do something if I'm going to get something back. But Jesus' way is saying, when you learn to be generous, when you, I give you more, you'll actually know what to do with that more. And if you don't and you only live to get more, you're only going to be a selfish person that's just going to control others and become so self-centered it's all about you. And the reason people reject and resist church a lot of times is because 
the church is, is, is for me. And Paul is saying, no. And Jesus is saying, no, no. The church is not for you. You're there for the rest of the world. You exist for others. It's the one group of people in the world that's not designed for itself, but designed for those that aren't a part of it yet. So the Grove, we don't exist for just those who come. We exist for those who haven't come yet. That's why we exist. We're a movement of people saying, let's engage. Let's use our gifts that God's given us to do more, right? And all of this might be true. That the more you get, the more you give, the more you get. That might be true, but... If you live that way, you'll never be satisfied. You'll always want more. But when you learn to say, I'm going to be generous with my time, my resources, my life, you're going to find more fulfillment. And the more that comes to you, the more you'll know what to do with it. And the way God gives us and knows that we're ready is we do, we do good with the little he's already given us. And then he's able to give us more to do more. But it's not just for us. It's always it's the blessing that God gave Abraham, right? I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the world. The second part of this is when it comes to the church, when it comes to leadership, here's what you have to understand is authority is for the benefit of those being led, not the ones leading. So Jesus takes the leadership paradigm and he flips it upside down. In his day, the benefit of authority was when you're in authority, you get all the benefits. You rise to the top so you can have everything you want to have. And for the first time, Jesus says, nope, not in my kingdom. It's not that way. You want to be great? You serve others. You want to be a leader? Use your leadership to help those that you're leading become the best they can become. And he leads us to become this kind of person that says, any kind of authority, if you're a leader, if you're a boss, if you're a parent, your authority is not for the benefit of yourself. It's for those that you are leading. And here's what's interesting is when Jesus flips this upside down, this actually brings fulfillment to our lives. It brings joy if you'll ask leaders that have, have, have had that paradigm shift and they realize, wow, I'm the boss not so I can have more. I'm the boss so that I can help a lot of others become successful. They actually live a happier life because it's not just about getting and getting and getting. It's about raising up. It's about helping others do more than they ever did. And so Jesus says, not so with you, right? Not so with you. The, the people, the religious people and the leaders of, 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 of their day, the, the disciples, he says they, they fight for the positions of authority and honor, not with you. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you serve others. You give your life away. Not, uh, it's not for your benefit. It's, it's for those that you're serving. Um, the third aspect of this, so when we talk about different aspects of the, of the church, right? So we're moving people. We're a group. We're a body working together. The second thing is when God blesses us and gives us authority and gives us ability to lead others, which he will, when you follow his ways, He's going to bless your life. He's going to open doors. But it's not just so you can be blessed. It's so you can be a blessing to others. The third thing is this. Relationships get better, right? Um, so the Christian marriage, when you think of the Christian marriage, when you think of Christian parenting, when you think of Christian relationships, it's always character, characterized by mutual care and submission. So a Christian marriage is characterized by mutual care and submission, not male domination. So Jesus he takes the paradigm of the, of the world that day and he flips it on its head. And he says, okay, women, all right? In his day, they're property, they're second class, they have no voice, they can't vote. Their voice is not even counted in court, right? Like if you brought a woman and testified, like, well, she's a woman, she doesn't count. So I guess he gets away from murder because we really can't trust her. She's a woman. There was no voice in his, in his, in, in his day. And throughout history, even the Old Testament, the, the, the Hebrew Bible is giving more and more authority, more and more ability to women to become everything God created them to be also. They're not a second class. And when Jesus gets there, he flips it. 
right? And women, from being, from being property, he begins to level the playing field. In fact, there's this conversation that he has, and I would encourage you to read this if you want to learn more about Jesus. And um, it's, it's found in the Gospel of Matthew. But essentially, some religious leaders come to him and ask him a question about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And they present this question to him, trying to like trick him, right? They're thinking like, we're going to get in with this because Moses is very clear on what he said in the Old Testament of how we should treat women, right? And so they bring it to him. And what's interesting is if, if you want to really know what the culture thought of what he, what he, what he said, listen to how they respond, right? Because their response gives us insight into really what they felt about what he just said. So he has this, this dialogue with, with, with these, these religious people about divorce and marriage, gay and remarriage. And after he says it, look what his disciples say. say. Matthew 19.10. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. So they're saying, whoa, Jesus, what you're saying is so, so hard. I don't think I want to get married. You're requiring something that nobody in culture requires. That's like crazy talk, Jesus. You're saying that. The woman is not property of a man. Like there's level playing ground. Now it's, it's a partnership. So our relationship is not about me dominating because up to that point it's male domination. And you just say, you'll be my, part of my kingdom. It's a partnership. You work together. You, you submit, right? Because in his day, it was easy to get rid of a wife. If she didn't look good enough, if she messed up, burnt one of your meals and you're like tired of her, right? You're gone. Next one, right? Next version, newer version, upgrade. (laughs) And it was easy because they had no authority. They had nothing. And Jesus says, guys, this is not the kind of relationship the kingdom of God is built around. This is unhealthy. Like you're you're finding any excuse, any reason to be selfish, to do your own thing, right? And his audience says, whoa, uh, Jesus, time out. (laughs) That is too hard. And there's sometimes he would say something and his disciples would say something like this, whoa, that's really hard for us to, to hold on to. That, that's really difficult. And men lost their advantage, advantage. It was no longer ownership, but partnership. Look what he says in Ephesians. And this section of Ephesians is called Instructions for a Christian Household. So how should a Christian family operate and, and, and relate? And this is the passage where guys say, you know, there's a, there's a part of it where it says wives submit to the husbands. And guys love to use that, like submit, woman, right? Like you submit to the, to the man of the house, right? But the, where we get that word submit, it, it's missing in that actually paragraph. It doesn't make sense because it, it actually comes from this verse. And if you notice the Christian marriage, Christian family, he starts off by saying submit to what? One another. Out of what? Reverence for who? Christ. You submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You do to others the same way God did to you. This is saying culture sees it this way. We see it this way. It's completely opposite. It's not about domination. It's not about control. It's not about authority. It's not about power. Really, it's about submission. So you can say Christian families, Christian marriage is a submission competition. If you want to know the key to really good relationships is the word defer. Defer to them what they want and try to race to the back of the line more than they can. Hey, what do you want to eat today? I don't know. What do you want to eat? Well, we ate what I wanted last time. Let's eat what you want to eat. No, no, honey, I love you more. You, you tell. Great relationships defer to the other person. It's not always me, 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 me. My needs, my needs, my needs. It's saying, how can I serve you? And how can I serve you? And sometimes it takes a little while for the, the, to be reciprocal, but if you stick with it, it really works. Because we're saying, I put my selfishness to the side 
to let you have the way you to, to be the person you want to, to be and need to be. So my responsibility is not to respond the same way they respond. It's to love my wife the way that Christ has loved me. I don't say, well, she's not treating me good, so I'm going to treat her. No, my responsibility is submit to her the way that, out of respect and reverence for Christ, the way he responded to me. So for us as Jesus followers, we must be known for the way we live, not just for what we know. Temple model, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, it's about knowing. It's about all this doing. It's about all these, all these rules. Jesus says, guys, it's about the way you live. If you'll just get this right, right, you, you, people will see something different within you. They'll see the love of God demonstrated in your, in your relationships. They'll see something different about it. So for us, you know, people, I talk to people and they say, well, marriage is like old, it's antiquated, it really doesn't work. It doesn't work when you don't do it God's way. I agree. It's really hard. And the way we're going to combat that as a culture is giving them examples of what it looks like to have a, a, a Christian marriage. To say, God, we're going to trust you in this. So Jesus, he says this. If you know what it is to follow me, John 13, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know you're my disciple if you love one another. It's a new command. This is the one that fulfills Jesus' teachings. You want to be a Jesus follower? Just do this one thing, and you'll begin to follow him the way he wants you to follow. Paul says this in Galatians. If you want to know the one thing that counts, there's only one thing that counts, is your faith expressing itself through love. If, you don't, if your faith has not been expressed through love, it's not the kind of faith that God really admi- wants you to have and he really even admires. This faith always expresses itself through love. So here's my challenge for us this week, all right? Would you race to the back of the line? No, seriously. Love others the way you want to be loved. Can you imagine what that would look like this week if you deferred to others? Say, hey, how can I serve you? What can I do to help you accomplish your things? And you're thinking like, whoa, time out. If I do that for everybody else, who's going to take care of me? You know who is? God. And you know takes better care of you than anybody else? God. Because he's the one that really is the one keeping the score that we should really care about the most. And you might serve 10 people before something happens all of a sudden God shows up. I promise he will show up and something will begin to change. And don't go tell everybody, hey, I'm going to become this new person. No, just start doing it. Just start acting on it. How can I love this person the way I want to be loved? When I go to a counter and this lady's taking a long time at the, or guy, and it can't just be a lady, the, the cashier, right? Guy or woman. They're taking a long time and I'm frustrated because I'm late. How would I want them to treat me if I was in their side of it? I'm going to treat them that way. And you're on the road and somebody cuts you off. And you, instead of thinking, jerk, think, Man, they're going somewhere really important, and they must get, want to get there before me. Have a great day. God bless them. Help them get there safe. How would I want somebody to treat me when I'm in a hurry? Honking and being rude because they don't understand that i got to get to the hospital, that I'm late for something, right? What if we treated others the way we wanted to be treated? What if we all raced to the back of the line? You know what happened? More people would want to come to church. Because they would say, there's something different about these people who call themselves Jesus followers. There's something different about that marriage. There's something different about those, that parenting style. There's something different about the people that work that way. If we live this way, more people would want to work for Christian bosses. Because they would say, I don't know if I believe in all this Jesus stuff, but that person is awesome to work for because they really love me. They have my heart, my best at the, in mind, my best at their heart. Imagine... If church, if Jesus people begin to live out the teachings that Jesus taught, and we all begin to serve others and help each other, and help them experience God, 
what would happen in our country, what would happen in our city, it would be amazing. I promise. Because all of a sudden now we're saying, I'm not going to just go to church. I'm going to be the church. I'm going to live out what God is calling me to live out. Do me a favor. Just you close your eyes and bow your head as we end our service today. God, we are so grateful for the work that you've done throughout history to help the church continue to move forward despite our inability to not make it about ourselves. God, forgive us in church history where we have made it about us. God, when, when people have used your name to do horrible things, God, forgive us. And help us as the church never become those people. But God, help us to see the way Jesus lived and see the way the early disciples and the early church lived. And help us to be that kind of church, God, in Santa Fe. Not just the Grove, God, but every other church that proclaims you in Santa Fe, let us all become that way. One body working together to make a difference in our world because our world desperately needs it. Our world is broken, Father. Our world is hurting. Our families and our cities are hurting. Individuals are hurting. And God, we have the answer for them. Help us to take it to them. Help us to live it out to help them on this journey, God. Help us, Lord God, be like what Malachi talked about and what Luke talked about, that the hearts of our the, the fathers and mothers would turn to the kids. That we would care for the next generation. We'd do our best to help them to know you and love you. Thank you, God, for what you do, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray.